Thank you, Jason, for that read. And thank you, Kevin, for the prayer this morning. I uh, appreciate that encouragement. And I pray that uh, in this lesson, if you have any questions uh, or if there's anything that, uh, that I can clarify, I would encourage you to please let me know. Um, we hope that you're built up. We hope that you're encouraged by the lesson this morning uh, from the Word of God. And we pray that everything that we do and say is in accordance with his word. One simple question for you today. Where is your passion? Where is your passion? Now, when I talk about passion, I'm not talking about what the world thinks about passion. I'm not talking about this fleeting desire, this, this emotional response. I'm talking about something that's much deeper. Where is your passion? There were several uh, key ingredients of passion. And we're going to look at today at some examples of, of passion. Um, some of the right passion, some of the wrong passion. But we have to look at what makes up a passion. What defines passion? How do we identify what we are passionate about? There are four simple pieces that really are key to understanding our passion. What do we focus on? What do we think about as we're going through our day? What is our attention devoted to? Secondly, what do we love and respect? What do we love and respect? The third is, what gives us our drive? Where do we get our energy from? What motivates us? And fourthly, what do we value? Simply, what do we put our value in? There are so many different elements to passion, but I think without those four, we really can't understand where our passion lies. Simply put, where do we spend our time? Where do we devote most of our time? And where do we focus our head and our heart? Passion is both. It's not simply an intellectual response, but it's not simply an emotional response either. It's a combination of both. So where is your passion? Again, as I mentioned before, it's not what the world thinks. The world has this, this vague, temporary, fleeting notion of passion. I'm talking about what motivates us as human beings, as members of the body of Christ. Where is our passion? Real passion is that which doesn't fly away. It doesn't evaporate, but it stays with us and it motivates us. And we have to realize at the beginning that passions can be misguided. They can be misdirected. And in the, the reading this morning, as Jason read for us, at the beginning of eight, chapter 8 in Acts, we see that the motivation, the passion that Paul had was incredibly powerful and strong. He felt that he was doing God's will. He felt that he was an instrument of God on earth. And yet that passion was so strong and so deliberate, but it was also terribly misguided. So as we go through a few examples of passion today, I want you to think, as we listen to the, to the lessons, as we listen to what other people put their passion in, I want you to reflect and to, to meditate on where is your passion? Where do you have your focus? Where do you spend your time? What is your heart and your head devoted to? And what do you attribute value to? There's a book I started reading uh, recently called Being Mortal. And for those of you who don't know, my dad is in uh, uh, an assisted living, a, uh, 
a nursing home environment. And the book, Being Mortal, is simply about a number of people who have tried to make that uh, institution better, who have tried to improve care for the elderly in the, in the world, and particularly in the United States. And there are many stories of passionate people who are devoted to improving the lives of the elderly in the, the way that they're treated and that the way that they're cared for, in the environment where they live, and in the way that they're handled and they're respected by those people who are working with them. So Being Mortal is a book that's focused on the end of life, on those who have lived a long period of time or for other reasons are physically limited um, and need help and care of others. And there's a passage in the book that I came across that speaks very much to the lesson that I'm trying to give today. Just bear with me shortly. I don't like reading a lot, but it's just short passage. In 1908, a Harvard philosopher named Josiah Royce wrote a book with the title, The Philosophy of Loyalty. Royce was not concerned with the trials of aging, but he was concerned with a puzzle that is fundamental to anyone contemplating his or her mortality. Royce wanted to understand why simply existing, why merely being housed and fed and safe and alive seems empty and meaningless to us. What more is it that we need in order to feel that life is worthwhile? The answer, he believed, is that we all seek a cause beyond ourselves. This was to him an intrinsic human need. The cause could be large, such as family or country or principle, or small, like a building project or the care of a pet. The important thing was that, in ascribing value to the cause and seeing it as worth making sacrifices for, we give our lives meaning. In fact, he argued, human beings need loyalty. It does not necessarily produce happiness and can even be painful, but we all require devotion to something more than ourselves for our lives to be endurable. Without it, we only have our desires to guide us, and they are fleeting, capricious, and insatiable. They provide, ultimately, only torment. And this is from a book that has absolutely no religious perspective at all. And yet in 1908, Royce identified that there is a drive that comes from within a person that is looking for meaning and for a purpose outside of the life that we live. Outside of simply being cared for and being fed and being warm, there needs to be an ultimate driver outside of us that, that leads us, that motivates us, that lights that fire within us, that gives us purpose. And what I would like to say today is, as much as this book is called Being Mortal, I would say that this book is called Being Immortal. And in fact, this book gives us the lessons that we need to have immortality with him in the hereafter. And the lessons that we have in this book are infinitely more important than the lessons that we can find. The examples that he has in Being Mortal are of individuals who are trying to improve others' lives, trying to make them more comfortable, more cared for, more safe. They're trying to make them feel like they're still living at the end of their lives. And you know what I would lead you to, to think today is that the word of God that's given to us is given to us to drive us to see the purpose in our lives is not for the here and now. It's not for the life that we're living now, but it's the life that we have to look forward to.
And the preparations that we make today are for the life in the hereafter. So in the lessons that we have in the word of God, let's see some examples of passion and what drives individuals to see the purpose outside of themselves. If you're still in the book of Acts, from the reading we had earlier, just turn one chapter over to chapter 9. And I'll put a shameless plug. I'll continue Mitch's uh, message this morning. I would encourage you to come out. We have a fantastic teacher, an excellent uh, opportunity. That was a tongue-in-cheek comment. Um, I'm teaching the class. Um, No, but we do have great commentary. There's an excellent dialogue that goes on in the class. And I would encourage everyone that's able to come out and to participate in the study because ultimately the the book of Acts is about not only the beginning of the church and not only the the individuals that were so key to the growth of the church, but it also reflects so wonderfully the passion that the early Christians had for the life in the hereafter, for the message that God had given to us through his son that they were carrying forward into the world, and the passion that was driving them to fight in such clear and, and determined ways against the, the, the structures that be, against the, the religious leaders of the day to show what truth was and what the real way was all about. And so if you come out and study with us, we would love to have you join us in the study of the book of Acts as we look through some of the leaders of the early church. But let's turn over to Acts chapter 9 now and take a look and see what, we can, uh, what examples we can see from the book of Acts. As many of you are familiar, Saul was incredibly devout in his serving of God. As we saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, he was there when they stoned Stephen. He thought he was an instrument of God. He thought he was doing God's will on earth. He was serving the religious establishment of the day. In fact, he was even serving up these the letters of imprisonment that he had gotten from the religious leaders. And he was using them to shackle and to bind people who were now joining the church. People who were being baptized into the blood of, God, of Christ, they were being arrested. They were being imprisoned. They were being persecuted because of their beliefs. And Saul felt strongly. He was driven by this understanding that he was doing God's will, that he was the instrument of God on earth. And yet we see that that conversion that takes place in, in chapter 8 is nothing short of miraculous. And the passion that he put into his devotion of persecuting the Christians... When he was converted in the, in the chapter 9 of Acts, we see that there's an immediate about face. He doesn't lose any steam. He doesn't lose any purpose. He doesn't lose any momentum. But he is now realizing that he had not been serving the one true God, that he had been persecuting Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And as such, he was going the wrong direction. And yet with that same passion that he had before the conversion, He now continues to preach and to teach. However, now he preaches and teaches Christ and him crucified. Let's take a look at chapter 9 of verse Acts. We see that in the first 19 verses that Saul was corrected by Jesus. And in verse verse 5 he says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And following that in verses 6 through 19, he then is directed to go to Ananias. He is blinded, and he, is at, he realizes that he is ultimately and completely dependent on other people for his well-being. And so he is taken to Ananias, and Ananias questions God and says, Wait a second. 
This man that has been persecuting you for so long, and now you want me to take him in? You want me to help him? You want me to, to bring him to life, to give him strength and sustenance? He's gone against everything that you've stood for. He has persecuted us and tormented us. Who, 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 why should you bring him into my house? Why should I be the one to care for him? And yet God says in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking of Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. As we read earlier, the, the passion that individuals feel often leads to suffering. And in fact, this is exactly the promise that God has given, that Paul will suffer for his passions. He will suffer for serving God. But and yet in verse 19, what do we see that he, after he goes to Ananias and after he um, regains his strength for three days, he remains and he eats, he regains his, his vision. In verse nine, 19 it says, and he took food and was, a strength, was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. The man did not miss a step. But he realized the error of his ways, and with that same intensity that he persecuted the church, he understood that Jesus was now the true Messiah. He was the way to life. And with that same intensity and that same fire that he had in his belly, he now started preaching Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So what was the result of, of this whole persecution? Um, that Saul had given, had, had led against the Christians. Now that he was turned and had become a Christian and was following with that same passion, with that same drive, what was the result? Let's turn down to the, toward the end of the chapter in verse uh, 31. Paul begins preaching verses 19 through 30. and verse 31, the result is clear. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So the persecution that had been endured for so long was now turned and had become an increase. And now we see that the persecution doesn't end. It doesn't stop, but it continues. But what other? So we see that, that Paul's life is an example of somebody who has such passion and such a drive to do what he believes is the right thing. He comes to a realization that what he had been doing is not right, is not God's will, but he is turned and he understands that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he begins preaching Christ and him crucified. Another perfect example of, of having passion is Peter. If we turn over to the next chapter in verse 10, chapter 10 of Acts, and we start looking in verses 9 through 16. So the story is familiar to many of us. Peter had been raised to believe that the Jews were the calling and chosen of God and that those who were outside of the Jewish nation were unclean, were unfit for the message and for the deliverance. And there's a, a vision that Peter sees three times. And three times a, a sheet is, is, uh, descends from heaven and it has all kinds of unclean animals unclean as far as Peter was concerned. And so each time it says, arise and kill and eat. And Peter says, no, not so, for I, it's unclean. I won't, I won't defile myself with what is unclean. And yet God responds with the message that's clear and says, what God has 
um, what God has cleansed in verse 15, no longer consider unholy. And so this vision happens three times in verse 16. We see that Peter sees this three times. And he's an incredibly devout man, but he's also very stubborn. And it takes this message three times for him to understand that the message is not just for the Jews, but now has expanded for the Gentiles and is now to be given to the Gentiles as well. So Peter, like Paul, Peter was corrected by God. And the message that was so clear for Peter is no longer is the Jew, are the Jews the only instruments, but also the Gentiles. So in fact, in later in verse 17 through 29, Peter recognizes that Gentiles are now worthy of receiving that same message. And he continues immediately taking that, that new revelation, that new understanding that he has about the role of the Gentiles and their reception of the word. And in verses 34 through 43, he begins immediately to preach to them. There's not a delay. There's not a skip step. But he takes that same zeal that he had for preaching to the Jews, and he applies it in preaching to the Gentiles, now that he understands. And so what is the result of that change that Peter underwent, that revelation that it was not just for the Jews? Let's turn down to verse 44 of chapter 10 in Acts. Verse 44 through 48. The result is this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them, speaking with tongues, and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So we see that immediately Peter had taken that same passion, that same intensity that he had preached to the Jews, and he now realized that the Gentiles were to be, as well, uh, recipients of the message. And so there were many that, were, that believed from the Gentiles, and in fact, as we see uh, in the upcoming chapters, there were challenges that the Jews continued to have, that the, the, the Christians who were Jews before continued to struggle with the fact that the Gentiles were now... Uh, recipients of that same message and were able to receive the Holy Spirit just as the Jews had in the past. And if we turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 13 in Acts, we see that the message that was taken so quickly from Paul and by Peter was also in the beginning of the first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey. The first 15 verses of Acts chapter 13, there are many cities that Paul and Barnabas visit as they're giving the message um, in that area. And we see even in the Paul's sermon in chapter 13, verses 16 through 41, the sermon that so closely parallels Stephen's sermon earlier to the Jews. Um, Paul's sermon to the Jews in the Antioch um, is also to convince them that they are responsible for the death of the Christ, of the Savior, and to turn them. Now, in Acts chapter 13, let's look at what the initial reaction was after the preaching that Paul and Barnabas had given in the, in the, in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Verses 42 through 45 of chapter 13. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging them that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And now they were meeting at the synagogue had broken up. Many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue. 
in the grace of God. And so we see that the initial response even continues through the next uh, Sabbath day in verse 44. Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And yet there's contrast with the Jews that were so stricken and were so against uh, the message that was being preached. In verse 45, we see that they came out in force. When the Jews saw the crowds, it says, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are returning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women and of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a uh, persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So even in the light of persecution, even in the light of struggle, of, of conflict that was being brought against them on a daily basis, they continued to, to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a contrast that is for what the world the world says, what drives you is within you. It's, it's your own making. And yet what we see from Paul and what we see from Peter and what we see from Barnabas on the first missionary journey is that what is driving them is not their own belief, not their own creation, but it's the message, it's the word that works within them, that propels them, that drives them, that lights their passion. And yet we see that even with the rejection that they've seen, that Paul and Barnabas dust off the the soles of their feet. Where does that come from? From Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. This is Jesus speaking to the 12 disciples. As you enter the house, give it your blessing. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back the blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor nor heed your words... As you go out of the house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, in the day of judgment, than for that city. It will be more tolerable for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. And so we see that the condemnation of those that reject the message is severe and final. So we see, in fact, that the the life that we have to look forward to is those that receive the message, those that hear it. Let's turn over to chapter 6 of Revelation and see what happens when people realize that it's too late. When they've come to to the despair and the other desolation that comes from rejecting the message. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. I looked, and when he broke the sixth sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled out, 
rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The song that we'll sing here in a few minutes is, There's a great day coming. Perfect choice, thank you. And that great day that's coming is only a great day if you've been found faithful, if you've lived the life that is for him, if the passion that's burning within you is not for yourself, it's not for your own focus or your own purpose or your own message, but if the passion that's burning within you is for the salvation of those that are around you, your family, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, if the, if the passion that burns within you is to help them, to strengthen them, to lift them up, to be there and helping them and aiding them in times of trouble, in times of weakness, in times of persecution when the world crashes upon us. If that's the passion that burns within you, stay strong, stay fast. And yet if you find yourself today finding that the passion that burns within you is for what the world has to offer, is for what the, the things that the world can give to you, realize that those are fleeting. Realize that those will not stay with you. They will not bring you to the pearly gates, and they will not lead you to hear from the word from God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We have to remember what drives us in this life is not what's around us, but what we have to look forward to. So let's be there one and for another to strengthen each other and to lift each other up. If you haven't responded, and yet you feel that you, you're lacking something, there's a message for you today. Be encouraged. The promise is for all who will respond, for all who obey the message is given. The opportunity to, to put Christ on in baptism, to wash away your sins, and to look forward to the promise that he has given to us of eternal life with him. Let's look forward to that together. If you need to respond to the invitation that's given today, won't you please come to the front and make your wishes known as we stand and sing.